This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I love featuring colleagues or those in the general Jewish outreach field who are doing incredibly unique and creative work. And Rabbi Dov Yonakorn certainly qualifies in that regard. He is a rabbi in the Bowery, in the Lower East Side of the Village in Manhattan, and servicing hundreds, really thousands of students across multiple demographics at NYU, alumni, and general members of the community, and doing so in a really extraordinary and unique way. He also happens to have an incredible personal backstory, traveling with the Grateful Dead and finding his way to Judaism, or at least back to his own Jewish roots as a teenager. So I think you'll find his personal narrative and his professional work captivating and uplifting. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. Rate and review where you are listening as well. And please share our podcast with a friend, a family member, someone who might benefit and enjoy these stories and this content on a regular basis. And now to our conversation with Rabbi of the Bowery, Dove Yona Korn. We are here with Rabbi Dove Yona Korn, Chabad of the Bowery, which is in Lower Manhattan, for those who are not familiar with all the various neighborhoods of Manhattan. How are you, Rabbi? What's going on? Baruch Hashem, and how are you? Praise the Lord. I'm doing awesome. Great to connect with you. And as I mentioned before our, uh, our conversation started on the recording, that I've heard your name for many years, and uh, you've been at the, the center of a lot of great educational innovation and um, doing a lot of amazing things. So love to hear about all of that. But first, I know you also have a very colorful and fascinating personal story. So uh, I know we don't have time for the, the three-hour version, but uh, at least the, uh, the basic overview. Give us a little bit of uh, information about where you came from, how it all started for you. Sure. Um, I grew up in New Jersey as a very secular Jew. I had a bar mitzvah. It was more bar than mitzvah. And to say I was secular, I didn't know Aleph base. I didn't know what was kosher, what was not kosher. I was really undereducated in that way. And I went to Reform, bar mitzvah, Reform Hebrew School and I didn't have a very inspiring experience. And so I was, I was really uh, pretty flat in the Jewish department, except for cultural Judaism, like bagels, lots and cream cheese, which are uh, the Holy Grail. When I was about 15, I began questioning the purpose of life. I was a professional actor. I was dabbling in the market and business. My father's an attorney. I had a couple, my mother's in advertising. I had a couple of life tracks ahead of me, but I was feeling that none of them were worth it just for the goal of making money, which was really what the message I was getting from society was get all the things you want. And so like, if you do X and you go to this school and then you go to get this job, then you'll be able to have the house in the Hamptons and the second car and all of the luxuries of life. Not that we shouldn't be good people, but my experience was, and my parents are wonderful people, but that, that kind of, there was not a lot of mission. I didn't feel a lot of mission in the narrative of being a young human and Jew growing up in the 80s. Even though you were doing acting, that wasn't an outlet for that? 
Uh, it's a good point. No, it didn't. It felt like a great creative expression, but it didn't feel mission-based for me, no. And so uh, I asked my mother when I was 15 years old, I'd started reading books on Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, I started reading up on the hippie movement and I grew up my dreadlocks and I was going by the name Butterfly and I was walking around town with patchwork and I was like a walking circus. I, I've got to just interject and ask why Butterfly? I don't, dreadlocks doesn't, Compute with butterfly to me. Well, no, but dreadlocks are like, I was, I spent time following the Grateful Dead. And so in that movement, many people have like a hippie name and everybody has dreads. So it's, it's like kind of a, a counterculture. I also had, I have big Afro hair. So I had like five fat dreadlocks that, that naturally occurred. You know, this, this whole make your own dreadlocks thing is not cool from a hippie like me. Um, I just, just rolled around the dirt enough to that they just uh, naturally formed with my mom, my Jewish mother wept. But no, the, I, 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 my father is a, a prominent attorney in town. My mother is a, also a prominent member of the business community in Morristown, New Jersey, where I grew up, Mars Plains. And all of a sudden, their son's walking around, you know, just in a cloud of marijuana <laughs> and, and uh, with, with like wearing a skirt to be like, you know, like a counter counterculture. And you weren't just walking around. You were, you were fluttering around. You were a butterfly. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, so I approached my parents. I said, I wanted to sign out of school. I want to travel around the country. And I want to find the purpose of life. So they took me to a therapist, which is, I have, thank God, thank God, eight daughters and a granddaughter, thank God. And I definitely agree. I concur with her decision to take me to a therapist when I came to her at 15 wanting to leave. I, I wouldn't even go that far. It would just be a no. But she did. And the therapist said that I'm not rebelling. I'm asking an authentic question that I, I'm not going to be satisfied until I answer. And I'm not a person who can do something that I don't believe in. I don't believe in another nine years of school to get the golden ticket that I didn't think I really wanted. It's a good therapist. Yeah, very, very. I actually called him later in life and thanked him. So I, I left. She signed me out of school. I was present in my class the previous year. And then the next year I was walking around in a, a billow of smoke. And, and so she signed me out and I left. And I went on my own. They didn't pay for it. I had a little money from working. And I started with following the Grateful Dead and traveling from car to car with people's names like Firefly and Dancing Bones. I would eventually go to an ashram and live in a Hindu ashram and study with a guru, go to a monastery. I was baptized by a Franciscan monk. I uh, lived in Santa Cruz, traveled around the country. Of course, didn't do anything uh, looking into my Jewish roots, which I found so underwhelming at the time. So um, I spent a lot of time exploring. In most environments, I would immerse heavily and then I was disappointed. Like the Grateful Dead scene, for for those that don't know, it's like a traveling Woodstock was ultimately disappointing because it was great ideals, but really a lot of dropouts of society and that were kind of spending the day just eating mushrooms. And uh, there was no mission there. If I'm looking for a mission, there was a, a proposed mission, but I didn't see the mission being carried out. And in each of the spaces I went to, I gained some things, but I also eventually was dissatisfied and left. So, you know, towards the end of this process, I was prepared to start my own religion. Um, <laughs> Cornism? What was it? <laughs> I had some documents, um, but at this time I ended up in a yeshiva. My uncle and aunt, uh, my father's brother became Orthodox. He became Chabad actually. And one night I was at their house and he was always trying to get me to visit the yeshiva. And I was not like, n- to me, I don't know why, you know, maybe it's indicative of, 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 it's like, I was like, no, no, they're so close minded. These Orthodox people and you see them around town. I figured, no, 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 no. They're not going to get, like, I guess in an ashram, I thought, you know, it's like, 
everybody's walking around in flowy, you know, tunics. And okay, so a hippie fits in there. If I walk into the yeshiva, no, no. There was more color on my body than there was the entire yeshiva, you know, physical color. So one night he's driving me home and I uh, am in the car. He says, do you want to come in? I have to go inside and buy my daughter a prayer book. And I said, I'll stay in the car. And that night was the first night I ever felt Jewish guilt. And I'm sitting alone in the car and something says to me, you won't even go inside? I say, no, I want to go inside. Come on, you're Jewish. Just go inside. What do you, what? I open the door. I go up to the yeshiva and I look inside, open that door. And there is 150 guys sitting around tables, singing songs. Drinking vodka and eating pickles. It was, I happened to walk into a Hasidic holiday, the 19th of Kislev, in the middle of their gathering. And, and I walk in with my colorful outfit, and all of a sudden the whole room turns to me. And the head rabbi, Rabbi Avraham Lipskrim, may he live and be well, uh, walked up to me. He asked me, What's my name? And I said, My name is Butterfly. And he said, What's your Jewish name? I said, Something Dove, something, uh, something, the D. And he, he, he had already been uh, drinking some vodka and he gave me a big kiss on the lips and said, welcome home. I said, no, I'm not home. He said, come, say l'chaim, let's sit and let's talk. I spent that night till four or five in the morning with these guys. And I was leading the conversation. I was debating them about, you don't understand. God is an energy, not some guy in the sky. They said, no, that's what the Torah says. I said, but you understand it's about, not just about rituals, about spirit and joy. I know that's what Hasidus says. And so the whole night they were, I was debunking what I thought they believed and they were re-debunking my, my, my expectations back. By the way, was this in Morristown? Yes. Which is amazing because you grew up right there. And I traveled all around the world and all of a sudden it's in my backyard. Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyways, so that night we debated and we drank. And I woke up the next morning and I put on film for my very first time. And I, I spent a week in the yeshiva. And I, it was tough. It was tough because I'm a very principled person. And at that time, I, was, I always believed in God, by the way. And I was expressing my faith in God by my whole identity, by my butterfly identity. And loving and kindness and generosity and health and nutrition. Some of the things they were teaching me felt limiting. Oh, you, on Friday nights, you can't do this. And this person you can't marry. And this, oh, all of a sudden, my, my like, it's all good mentality was being attacked by something that felt uh, very restricting. But I, I grappled with it for a week with the rabbis and we debated and we fought. They made actually a, a, a gathering every night I was there. They sensed that I was, some, I was someone a little bit um, different. You were a, wor- a worthy investment. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I'm, I'm walking around with this outfit and like, and I was challenging them. I'm a, I, you know, I'm a stubborn guy. And so it was really special. I learned olive base. I learned to study, studying Hasidic thought, Talmudic thought. And I left after a week because there's a lot. But, and I wasn't, it wasn't in my schedule, but I, I, had, I had the time in my life to do it because I was, I'm a traveling mystic, <laughs> whatever. So <laughs> I went back to California, but I took with me a Siddur prayer book a pair of tefillin and a Tanya, the, the primary book of Hasidic thought. Were you encountering a lot of Jews in these other stops, these ashrams? And I mean, people say they're heavily Jewish. Yes, I did. I did, but I wasn't drawing it to me because I wasn't, it wasn't a strong identifier for me at the time. Sure. To make a long story shorter, I eventually would pray really deeply to God. 
and say, let me know where it is that you want from me. Because I had a vision of myself being like, you know, my wife and I having dreadlocks and like living in like a, like a little like nudist colony, like writing poetry and smoking pot in like Vermont and having like maple syrup trees. And by the way, you still could do that, by the way. I, I, you know, there's always <laughs> retirement, you know? <laughs> oh, yes, that'd be good. It'd be good. It'd be very different than 23 years in New York City. But I really prayed. I, 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 I feel thankful that I had the, the clarity to just say, whatever it is that you want from me, whatever you create me for, that's what I want to do. And that was a very powerful prayer. And, and, and over time, and I said, like, I hope it's not, <laughs> I hope it's not orthodoxy, but if it is, then I'm, I'm all in. And over time, over the next couple of weeks, I started really feeling it, which is special. You know, I, 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 God gave me the, 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 cause I think because I opened my heart so deeply, I felt like he enabled me to start feeling it. I started feeling, wow, this is really nice. This, these to feeling are really powerful. Like, Shabbat, that, that, you know, there's something special happening right now. It's interesting. So, so it's so hard to trim this story down. I, while I was out there, I also met my wife at a Grateful Dead concert, also a secular Jewess. And uh, it, it's, that's the story of how we both separately essentially came to observance is a wild story that I won't tell now. But you met before, you met before that point. Yeah. And um, after that, I would she and I would travel a little bit together and I would become a little bit more religious and say, I'm ready, I need to, I'm ready for Yeshiva and probably to stop hanging out with this girl <laughs> as much as I really cared a lot for her like, very deeply, by the way. I had, I had love at first sight for her, which is actually a Torah idea, as you know, but she didn't have it for me. So that was fun. As long as she has it now after, after you had your first grandkid, you know? <laughs> yeah, thank God. Like, I think, thank finally now, 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 thank God. You had it before the wedding. But yeah, uh, I, I eventually decided to go to Yeshiva University and study there. And then eventually I decided to go to Chabad Yeshiva and uh, get my smicha and uh, open a Chabad house. It's interesting that you didn't just go straight back to Chabad and kind of stick with that straight through. Were you intimidated by that? Did that kind of represent something uh, like a bridge too far? Cause that was your uncle's, you know, religion. So funny that you asked that. So when the truth is, I thought everybody was Chabad. <laughs> Me, I, so I went to Yeshiva University because I finally told my mother that I picked a life path for myself. And I said, and now I'm ready to like re-enter society, essentially. And so I said, I want to go to Yeshiva. She said, you were such a good student, at least go to Yeshiva University. So I called them up literally three days before the semester began. I took my GEDs, I took my SATs without finishing high school, and I, I pulled everything together. And I came into there. They said, well, it's, registration's closed. I said, you're going to want to take me. Just trust me. I came in. I gave them my whole song and dance. And they accepted me. And I, and I went there to start a psychology program. And um, I had my own apartment off campus because you're not usually, usually have to be on campus, but I was vegan and it, it's, it was funny. But, then, but there I really, I was surprised after a few weeks, I was like, there's something different about this place than Morristown. The, the energy is different. There's more people wearing ties. And where's that picture of the rabbi on all the walls? And where are, the, where are those pickles, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's about good. You were, how old were you, 18? 18. So I started missing Chabad, to be honest. I started missing the mysticism and the spirit and the Rebbe's ideology, which captured me immediately as revolutionary and like uh, almost a rebel against Jewish mediocrity or, or a lot of things that really, really touched me. And so I started going there Thursday night to Monday morning. I started spending my weekends in Chabad. 
And then after a year, I took, they gave you a year abroad. I took that in Brooklyn, which is far <laughs> travels. And then that year I got married after my wife went through her journey. And I decided that I, my, I, I was supposed to, this is a nice anecdote. I was supposed to tell my, I promised my father I would go back to Yeshiva University and finish my psychology track because he wanted me to have a stable source of income. And after being married for a year and after immersing myself deeper and deeper into Jewish ideology and Chabad philosophy, I said, you know, I don't want to wait seven years to help people. I want to get out and open a Chabad house right now. And so I had to break that news to my father. And like the big joke is like, it's not easy opening a Chabad house and running a Chabad house in New York City. Financially, it's uh, uh, indescribable. Right. But so my father and I's joke is the stable source of income. <laughs> That's all he wanted. Exactly. It's, you know, I, I really wonder just kind of speculating alternate realities, alternate possibilities, you know, why you today is much more sensitive to sort of, yeah, that spiritualist impulse and they have, you know, Moshe Weinberger in the corner of the new Hasidic movement. I wonder, had you been there today, might that have slaked your thirst in a certain way? You would have ended up on that, that route. Actually, I was blessed to be one of the people that started the Chabad at YU Club. Because once I really immersed and I really, I really got into it and I was like putting on to fill in with kids that grew up religious and then we're going the other direction. And, but yeah, it was, why it was very, very different today. Very different. It's the neo-Hasidic movement, as they call it, is, is everywhere. I, somehow I got to say the Rebbe, the, the Rebbe as an individual really got my kishkas, got my soul. I had been around a lot of leaders and I'd seen that. I've been very disappointed by a lot of, like a lot of leaders and, I heard some ideas from the Rebbe and studied them that I just, I found them to be unparalleled just from a, like a, a human leadership perspective. What year was this? Did you get, did you get a chance to meet the Rebbe or he was already sick by what, 92? Yeah, this is, so this was in like 90, I, I first came to Yeshiva before the Rebbe passed, but then I became, uh, I got, I finally immersed afterwards. But he was already sick before he had a stroke before anyway. Yeah, yes, right? yeah so, but, but still people were visiting and there was still, it was still a sight to see. Right. You said you were early on searching for a mission. Yeah. Obviously, you found kind of the, the promise of a mission in many of these other places, but ultimately the failed manifestation of that. In Chabad, it sounds like you found the mission and its expression in a practical way. What spoke to you about the mission? What was there? Was it spreading godliness in the world, bringing people together? Like What, what was that that said, oh, that's it. I, I got it. This is my mission. So that's a great question. Chabad showed me that Judaism at its core is mission-based and that the mission is to make this world a home for Hashem. And it's, it's a revolution. Torah, the Judaism is a revolution. Avram and Sarah were revolutionaries. All great Jewish leaders, Esther and Mordechai were revolutionaries. The Baal Shem Tov was a revolutionary. And I, I, I translate revolutionary as pushing back against something. And so Judaism at its core is pushing back against human mediocrity, human selfishness, and really the, the limitations of nature, believing that this world can only be kind of just a place of smart animals to live and enjoy, there's more going on here. And so that, that really captured me as far as even just being a, an individual Jew doing a mitzvah, it, that is fundamentally mission-based. That moved me deeply. And then with, within the Rebbe's great call to action, which many people follow, whether they're Chabad, quote unquote, or not, but then the, the idea of going out and teaching these ideas and sharing them and, and being on the front lines I think that people ask me, why don't you just become a normal Chabad Jew that has a, that has like a job? You know, why become a shliach? And I said, I came here for missions. So I wasn't going to do like, I wasn't going to go anything but all the way, but I really did. I, I'm not saying I fulfilled the mission. I just said, I really signed myself up for, 
a very mission-based life here. So how did you end up starting uh, a shlichus and, you know, going out into starting your own Chabad house? Why New York? Why lower Manhattan? How old were you? Like, how did that all come together? Yeah. So it's a, another long story, but within minutes of deciding that I was going to, uh, after having a really meaningful talk with one of my mentors, that I was going to tell, now tell my father that, Dad, I love you and I'm sorry, but I have to go open a Chabad. I can't. Just like I had to leave school, I also couldn't stay another seven years in NYU or five years just because, you know, I just, I couldn't. And so when I decided that my wife and I and my mentor decided that we're going to have to tell my father that, that we want to open a Chabad house, so I went to, to pray the evening prayer at the main shul there, 770 Eastern Parkway. And I ran into a friend, a good friend of mine. He said, I'm opening a Chabad house in Greenwich Village and looking for a partner. And I used to hang out in the village with the hippies. I got within three minutes of making that decision. So that the hand of Hashem was there, the hand of God. How, how old were you at the time? I was 19. You were 19 and you were ready to go start a house. And this is only about a year after you'd gotten into learning. And I think I started, the, the timeline here is, is blurry, but I think I started YU, you know, my birthday's in June. I started YU when I was 18 and then I got married when I was 19, and then at the end, like towards the end of my 19th year, right before I turned 20, is when I had this conversation with my father. And I was still finishing smicha, but I was doing part, both part-time and beginning the nascent days of building a Chabad house here in Greenwich Village with this partner of mine, Rabbi Bankholter. And it was, it was wild. Right, but I guess my point is that you had very little education under your belt at that point. Unfortunately. Yes. I, I, so I, I somehow, thank God, I learned languages quickly. I didn't know that. And so I, I very, even when I was at YU for a whole year, I was learning, like I began to learn. So I had, I had YU for a year. I had the studies I did before YU when I was like soaking in Judaism. Then I had my time at, at Chabad Yeshiva. Then I had a year when I was married in Chabad Yeshiva. And then I, yeah, but I, yes, you're right. No question about it. It's, it was concentrated, but um, impactful. So you, this partner kind of drew you in to, to go to the village. The Bowery, I guess, is a, uh sort of a subsection of the village or an adjacent neighborhood? Yeah, over time, Rabbi Benko and I opened two organizations. So we focus on students and young professionals, and he focuses on uh, other village folk and families. And so about three or four years into it, it was hard. I mean, you're talking about knocking door to door, just, and it's not a, it's a transient community. It's not like, you know, every Chabad house has its challenge. The challenge in, you know, in Vermont is that you have a very limited community. There's, in your area, there's a thousand Jews and, and you have to make it work. Whereas here I have limitless amount of Jews and people coming and moving and traveling and visiting. But the hard part is that, that it's hard to hold it together. And, and I was very, in the beginning, it was very hard, not just financially, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, finding our focus was hard. And then thank God, God blessed me with the opportunity to focus on the students at NYU and other local schools. And then eventually as they graduated, they want to stay part of it. So we made an alumni branch which became a broader young professional branch. And then once that happened, we started cooking. That's when the focus began and the volume started going, you know, 500 people for Shabbos, 1,000 people for Shabbos, like really different branches, staff, building, you know, that's, that really led us into a more institutional um, evolution. So, you know, I know that you've been regarded for a lot of educational innovations and creative programming. What are some of the things that you've learned about and that you've implemented to engage this very, you know, constantly evolving, but, you know, very particular niche crowd of young students and young professionals in the city, kind of at the avant-garde of 
you know, young Jewish I guess, millennials and then Gen Zers and so forth. What are some of the early lessons and, and how has that evolved and, and what do you see today? Great question. I'll share with you three very short lessons that I think have driven our, our, our impact and, and that we've, we're still honing. One, Jonathan Sachs says about the Rebbe that he made leaders, not followers. And, that, and so that the idea that almost everything we do is led by leaders. If we make a, a branch of our organization for more religious undergraduates, less religious undergraduates, the law school, whatever, whatever branch we have, it starts with a group of five, 10, 20, now it's 30 or 40 leaders in each community that then are leading that, that movement. And it's, they don't feel like they just help me out, Rabbi Korn and Sarah, help me out the Chabad staff. We're all in this together. I think I'm well positioned to, to, to give that message because they know I didn't grow up religious. So it's not like I come from a dynasty of Chabad uh, family and then now like, they're, they're the stranger. They sense that I also, I also feel strange. So then you're really relinquishing agency to some degree over the project. A hundred percent. And so when it comes to halacha, I have to be very careful. When it comes to brand issues, like let's say I have some religious students that I think want to do something too religious or have someone that wants to do something too alienating or whatever it is. So what we try to do is this unique balance of, of sharing our experiences, sharing, or yes, let's say they just want to do something that's a silly idea. Like, no, that's not going to work. We tried that before. We want to share our experience. As we become more and more involved as an organization, we want to help our leaders evolve as they come in at each sequential moment and also it's our inspiration, but also give them a chance to lead. And so that's, it's, it's, when it works, it really works very, very beautifully. That's number one. I think that the, one of the Rebbe's revolutions is empowering all the shluchim to lead. He did that, right? He also gave up agency. He said, yeah, Rabbi Korn, you're, 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 you're now in the Bowery. They're looking at you and, and I believe in you. Good luck. And so I think that, that while people can note Chabad's revolution of the shluchim, I think the next revolution is by all the young people that are being impacted by the shluchim and other Jewish leaders around the world. Like it's time for them to take ownership. You know, that's number one. Number two is... I think that you have to be very God provocative. Meaning I think that, that, that people today don't have time for a lot of BS. And I personally don't relate to a Judaism that's not God focused. I'm too much of a nut job to be, follow all these rules for any other reason than the fact that the existifier of all creation has put me here for said purpose. <laughs> you know, so I, I talk about God openly and intensely. Like I'll ask a student, do you have a relationship with God? What's that like? And, and try to build Judaism out from that place. I think that, that, that millennials need that kind of honesty. It's not just that you don't want to hide it. I don't think there's anything else that's compelling enough in today's day and age to drive a deep Judaism. That's number two. And number three, along that same track is, I think that we have to be really cognizant of undoing like a PTSD Judaism, and like a, a Judaism of, of the past that's like guilt-oriented and, and pain-oriented and look to a Judaism of the future, which is like, about impact and transformation and modernity and being in the world and being dynamic humans that are using that dynamicism to be able to express our relationship with God. So how does that actually express? How does it translate into concrete programs? What would be an example of, of an initiative that would marry these themes together? Um, great question. So I think that you take a gathering of young Jews a leadership board gathers a group of their friends. I'll give a shout out to my daughter and son-in-law who are starting a new branch of our organization called Rejuvenate, which is reaching out to more Jews on campus that have less Jewish background. And they create a board. So that board is now like, the, it, they're doing the dance of helping this board lead. 
And for their kickoff party, they rented out, they were able to get, because of COVID, an incredible outdoor space at like a swanky penthouse in the village. And they had this really like stunning party that gives a sense of exciting Judaism and passionate Judaism. And then it's the end of the party is a group of 30 or 40 of them having a deep conversation about, about life, about God, about purpose, about mission. So it's, it's helping to join like what I would call sexy living along with like deep spirituality and uh, all being very approachable and peer led. So that's, that's like an example of a, a successful event. Obviously there could be a learning event that's more concentrated or a prayer event that's more uh, direct, but um, that's an example. It's like something that's peer led, something that has a component of, of spirituality, but also that, that smells fresh. Is there an occupational hazard about talking about God in that people you know, automatically have certain associations or they're you know, kind of afraid of that? And even if there is, is that okay? Meaning, are you saying, look, I want people who are able to have the real conversations. It's not for everyone. People will walk away. That's okay. I mean, you don't want that, but the alternative is to dilute it to such a degree that you wouldn't be giving anyone anything anyway. So at least engage whatever percentage of people, and it might be a high high percentage in a real conversation. It's a great question. Um, I think that two things I want to say. One is that, yes, it's not like you, every time you invite someone over for Shabbos, you have to give them a quiz on how they feel about God. And it's not that at every Shabbos table, it, it has to be the only conversation. That being said, I think that, again, I, one of the things that I, that I'll give you a, a crazy line of the Rebbe's is when he asked people to go on the streets and ask people, are you Jewish? And Brantzillon, which is socially just such a revolutionary approach. I mean, it's, it's, it's awkward. It's crazy. But it's also like stirring the social pot of humanity at large. There's a great article about some anthropologists that are studying like the impact of this kind of like decentralization of social infrastructure that happens when such a thing occurs. But the Rebbe said that if someone gets upset, oh, how dare you ask me, and they're Jewish, it's also a win because you've stirred something inside them. And so I think that, that on one hand, I don't mind doing that. I think that you can't fake it for too long. People are going to know what you're made of. They're going to know what you're, what you're, what you're sharing, what your teachings are. And I think that, that you have a better chance with millennials of hooking them to really be part of something if they feel it's authenticity than if they feel that you're sugarcoating it. But on the other hand, obviously, I'm sitting here talking about it. Like, you know, it's like we're talking about the philosophy of leadership. And then when you're actually in it, it's much more... It's messy. It's messy. And it's also, it's much more execution-based. It's not like I get to sit back on these calls and like, pontificate about what we're doing in 20 minutes. I'm like, where's got the Megillas? <laughs> Story of my life. I relate. Do you see a difference, by the way, in, in this regard between college students and young professionals in their capacity to absorb these ideas or to, to have these kinds of conversations? All sorts of them, but, uh, but ironically, not many of them correlate. Like I find that in some ways, young professionals are more mature and are more open to more serious conversations. In some ways, they're more jaded and have become older and are, and are have less philosophical innocence and some college students are really deep and cerebral and want to get into it some of them just want to have a good time so it's there are differences but i don't see them being like trackable i think honesty is a huge honesty is very in you know but at the same time honesty is getting people in a lot of trouble these days as well no i just i'm just saying i think if if you speak to someone from your heart It'll speak to their heart. So I just think that, like, I don't believe in strategies of outreach. You know, I'm not saying that we aren't strategic, but I think that it's very much about love. Loving another person, loving another human, loving another Jew, 
and being able to share with them your journey and what you've learned and and see if you can learn from them and be inspired by them authentically, not just as like a, you know, a nice way of putting it. That really is the magic of leadership and outreach. And people know it if it's there. Love is real. It's real. And judgment is poison. And people know if you're judging and you're like, if you have a rabbi who's like, I really wish I could make you orthodox, but you know, too bad you're not. And so they, people feel it. And people feel like one of the things that I, I think that we're blessed to do very well is to make a person feel like, we believe in you and we love you and you're going to have your own journey. And we, and we are here to help be part of that journey and help the Torah guide that journey and to help your soul guide that journey. But like, you're also your own person. And, and, and we're excited to see how you'll do things that we can't do. What's fascinating is that although that love and that authenticity is the core message, you are also known for very sleek packaging and for, you know, a beautiful website and, and very tasteful and classy events and, creativity and all those kinds of things, which are outer trappings. Yes. Well, it's also, to be honest, that's more for, it's, it's almost like that's more for me. Meaning I want, I want it to be like an organization that I'm proud to be a part of. And so it's like, I want, I like classy things. I get branding. I want things that reflect what I believe the, the messaging deserves. So it's not like we're sleek because it, it attracts people. It's so funny. In all my days, I never thought, oh, that's going to be so sexy. People are going to come. I thought, well, if I do it right, if I, if I present this organization right, if I present this concept properly, if I can show them how, how I believe a rabbi should be in this scenario, then, then of course people, it's going to be, of course it's going to be well-received because, because it's, it's, because I'm receiving it well. That's really interesting. So instead, actually, instead of it being kind of a dichotomy of this core authenticity, but I need to package it to attract the people to come in, what you're actually saying is it's all about authenticity. And in your particular case, the sleekness or the creativity is just an extension of your authentic self. 100%. I think, I think the Judaism of the future is a lifestyle brand. And like, it's, it's a full life thing. Like, like, I don't believe that like there's Judaism and then we have to be apologetic about our human experience. I'm a chef. I love to cook. I love wine. I love travel. It's not like, oh, too bad that I'm not, you know, just uh, sitting and learning all day, even though that's very special for those people that have that, that inclination and proclivity and that, that merit. But for me, it's, I believe that the Judaism of the future has to be a, a, a whole process. Sometimes therapy is important. How, being a healthy person is important. It's about a whole package. And so I think that what we're trying to do here is to try to, we're trying, certainly not, 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 not perfecting, but really trying to, to present a, a, and I've heard this from students that are sensitive to these things, like a Jewish lifestyle brand. Fascinating. And I think that your, your notion of a wholeness and a, uh, coherence to what you're trying to accomplish for, and give over for people is a great segue to kind of my final topic, which is that sadly, for whatever historical reasons, we can analyze you know, some other setting, but there is a uh, tension or a complicated relationship that the broader Chabad community has with parts of the other, you know, other parts of the Jewish world and specifically, maybe ironically, mostly with other parts of the Orthodox world, whereas there's this very beautiful and very kind of mutually respectful relationship with the non-Orthodox world. Uh, and I think this is starting to change and evolve, but within the Orthodox world, there are definitely, you know, some, some complicated tensions that, that exist there. And from what I understand of your reputation and colleagues of mine and people that, I, you know, things that I've read over, over the years, that's something that, that you've tried to transcend and you've tried to kind of, you know, move beyond that. And, you know, just in your, in your own personal life, you went to Yeshiva University and the Chabad, maybe that's a, a microcosm of a broader philosophy. What are your thoughts on that general you know, reality and that challenge that exists out there? And, and how do you see yourself as maybe an antidote to it or 
a player on that stage? Great question. First of all, it makes a lot of sense to me. It just does. It's just coming from the outside, that tension makes a lot of sense to me. Chabad really from the get-go was just doing things that are so outside the box. One of the things I think is really incredible about Hasidic thought is it decentralizes the Jewish institution, which is dangerous and also really powerful. Meaning that the Baal Shem Tov really taught that if you have to say who's more important, the Jew or the Torah, really it's the Torah that's helping to reveal the power of the Jew, not the Jew that's just serving the Holy Torah. But that's very decentralizing for the institution of, of religion. Which is ironic because Hasid, in Hasidism, you would think more about centralization. In terms I know. Of the Rebbe. So you have the centralization of the Rebbes and of the, uh, yes. But really, and that, so what the Rebbe, what Chabad did in a strong way, what the Rebbe really did is the Rebbe said, you have to find the Rebbe inside you. I mean, it's really wild, but that's, it's highly decentralized. And so that, that decentralization was off-putting for Chabad when the Rebbe started. <laughs> So the fact that there's tension there makes a lot of sense to me that, that we would probably get along better with like with people that are less entrenched in institutional infrastructure or in religious ideology than someone who is. In a funny way, funny way Chabad mix can get along with like a secular person, maybe better than another Orthodox person because our Orthodoxy is so uh, unique to like to, to the way we live it that like it's a different kind of orthodoxy. We're like, I don't get that. Like there are things in the orthodox movement because I'm so entrenched in Chabad. I don't get that, like that approach. Like we talk about report, reward and punishment in Chabad, like Olam Haba, we're like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> like we don't even think about it. It's like, I'd rather be in, in, in Gehenna with another Jew than being Gan Eden alone. It's like, you know, a famous phrase. And so it's, it's, it's just, the ideologies are different. Whereas if I was talking to someone who's less affiliated, those, those tensions aren't there. So that's number one. Number two is that there's history in everything. All of the Chabad is its own institution. And, and as, as these organizations have blossomed and grown up, all of them, there is history there. That, that Politics and sociology and everything. Yes. Um, number two. But number three, I think what's most important is I think that, that for sure, especially as Mashiach, please God, is coming very, 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 very soon. I think that we have a great opportunity to all work together for that. And I think, by the way, working together doesn't mean we're the same. We're, there is differences with the Orthodox community. And playing nice doesn't mean that we can't compete too. It's, it's beautiful. I think competition is a healthy thing in the spaces that we're trying to occupy. I think one of the ways that I've been blessed to work with leaders from other Orthodox institutions is that I always say from the get-go, let's compete. You know, I don't, I let, let's, it's okay. And I, listen, I don't want to lose. I don't want you to lose. And when one of us is winning, we're both winning for the cause. So that's the, you know, the famous idea that you can open a synagogue next to another synagogue, but you can't open a pizza store next to another pizza store because... In, uh, in this space, we say it's so important that competition is healthy. So I think that if, sometimes I find that uh, Jewish leaders want to like do like a kumbaya. It's like, let's, let's all have only one party for all the six shuls in town. And let's only have one this. I find that to be, uh, I'm not saying that there's not cases where that works. And I am, I'm lucky to be in a place where there's an infinite number of people. So I have challenged leaders that I know to say, let's all go out there and do our very best. And if one of us seems to excel in one space, then, then we're going to have the crowd there. And if someone excels in another space, they're going to have the crowd there. And so I think that through a combination of being forward-looking about the great mission ahead of us of, of really kind of finishing off the Jewish cause and trying to bring the world the healing that it needs so badly right now, and by respecting our differences and giving space for our healthy competition, I think there's so many opportunities for us to like all work together and love each other authentically. Do you think that's a commonly held presumption is it something that you see is changing do you find yourself fighting peers or colleagues about this issue where, where do you think the world is going on this um i don't know I'm, for better or for worse i'm so entrenched 
in my life here that I'm like, I don't read news about Chabad at large or Jewish in the world at large. I'm just so in it here. There's so much going on. There's so many people. This it's just wild. So I, but I do know many of my peers that have really strong relationships with many other Orthodox leaders, like many, 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 many. And so I definitely think the trend is going in a positive direction that way. And I think that the youth want to see from us also is just, but again, they don't need that. It's okay to, to say we're different in this way. I'm different that way. But like, it, there's a difference between being different and being enemies, God forbid. And like, and I think that that it's, it's healthy boundaries make healthy neighbors, but like, I think that there's plenty of good boundaries to be had and there's lots of love to be shared. And just in closing, Rabbi, what, what's next for you? What's kind of the, the final, I don't say the final frontier, but the next frontier, what's unaccomplished yet? Uh, I mean, I, obviously there's an infinite number of Jews where you are and it's transient. So they're constantly turning over. So you could just continue doing the exact same thing for the next however many years. But is there another dimension that you're looking to, to reach? Another qualitatively distinct terrain that you'd like to traverse in the coming years? Yeah, I, I think that I'm very interested in being able to share our, the ideas that we've learned, some of the things we've discussed on this call succinctly, and also to have my students sharing it themselves. I'm very excited about student-led content and like really, really being able to study these ideas with my students and have them teaching it. And I think that that speaks to a bigger mission of mine, which I'm trying to use technology however we can, and I'm at a very early stage of it, but to be able to deliver real relationship building with more and more of our constituents, right? Because if we have a thousand people through the door, how many of them do we have a strong relationship with? And we have a growing spiritual staff, but if we, if we could figure it out properly, and technology really does with things like Salesforce, there's an opportunity to be able to, so to say, track a customer and make sure they're getting the most they can get out of our offerings. So if you take the combination of honing content and then developing strong relationships with our constituents, we can be making stronger and stronger leaders. And then per capita, pumping out more and more incredibly empowered young Jews to the world. Just to give you some nachas, a couple of people that I know are close with you have been on the podcast and have spoken for a number of my own college groups. Joe Teplo, Adina Lichtman, she's speaking actually for me next week again, and she's been on the podcast. So already I've benefited from some of your own uh, products to a degree. Rabbi Doyona Korn, thank you so much for joining us. Many blessings. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.